This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you ready to study and hear from God's Word together today? Turn to James chapter 1 in the New Testament. If you're here and the Bible is kind of new to you, the book of James is towards the end of the Scriptures in the New Testament, after the big book of Hebrews. The book of James is one of the most beloved letters in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you were to poll a lot of Christians what is their favorite book of the Bible, I would probably guess that the book of James would land somewhere near the top of that list. And over the course of the next 10 or 11 weeks or so, we're going to be making our way through this New Testament epistle. I'm going to dive right into the text this morning because looking at verse 1 is going to really set our study up for us this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This is a very short welcome. It's a very short greeting compared to some of the other ones that we may see in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John. But in this little, this little, short, phrase, this little short verse... We're going to learn a few things to set us up well for our study. And so I want to encourage you to go ahead and take your listening guide out this morning and follow along with me as we make our way through this first section of James. But let's just first of all think about James at a glance. James the man as well as James the book. First of all, James is a cha- was a changed man. James was a changed man. Says James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, James was the half brother of Jesus. And John chapter 7 says that as Jesus began his earthly ministry, that even his brothers didn't believe who he was. He didn't even have support in his own household. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this same James is among the witnesses whom Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And then you make your way to Acts 15, and James is going to be one of the foremost leaders in the early church of Jesus Christ. And you see that after the resurrection of Jesus, James's life had been changed. Jesus had gone from being a doubter to being a believer, being someone very obscure when it comes to faith, to now being a leader among the faithful. He was a changed man. Secondly, he was a humble servant. In James 1, he identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone could have pulled rank at this point, it would have been James. James was the half-brother of the Messiah. Jesus was in his household. He was related to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He could have pulled rank and identified himself as the offspring from the sacred womb of Mary congenital sibling of his brother, the Lord Jesus, and confident of the most holy Messiah. But he didn't identify himself as that. Instead, he simply identifies himself as a servant of God, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a changed man. He was a humble servant. He was a faithful pastor. He says that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 
Now, the 12 tribes is how the people of God in the Old Testament were described. And they were scattered among the nations, particularly when they had been taken captive by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And so James here says that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's using the same language of the people of God in the Old Testament to describe and personify the Jewish Christians here in the New Testament. James was a Jewish man. He was the Jewish leader of the Jewish church in the first century. And he uses that same scattered language to describe those Jewish Christians who had been driven out of Israel because of primarily the persecution that arose after the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Now, Peter is going to employ a very similar language in his first letter to the church at Rome in the book of 1 Peter. He's going to use that same language of those who uh, had been scattered in the dispersion in which this illuminates a truth for you and me today. That for those of us who follow Jesus Christ in this world, which is not our ultimate home, we also are scattered we're dislocated. We are in a home, a for, we're in a foreign place until we reach our heavenly citizenship in heaven. And so I want you to know that although James was a real man and a real faithful pastor ministering to a real group of real Jewish Christians, a specific group of people in the first century, based on what Peter does towards the Gentiles, in Rome, in First Peter, we can come all the way to today and see that James is not only writing to the Jewish Christians of the first century, but he's also writing to all Christians in all centuries because every Christian who has ever lived on the face of the earth is living in a temporary home, walking through on our journey until we reach our ultimate home, our heavenly citizenship with Jesus. So he was a changed man. He was a humble servant. He was a faithful pastor writing to a real people whom he shepherded. And then the book. It's a very practical book. It's a practical book. Now, James wrote this book about a decade or so after the time of Jesus. It's believed to be the first book written in the New Testament. And he is consumed. And you're going to see this as we make our way through the text this spring. He is consumed with the practical outworking of our faith. James's book has the highest frequency of imperatives in all of the New Testament. Almost 60 commands in only 108 verses. And what he's going to show us is that faith, that yes, our faith and faith alone is what saves us and makes us right with our God. But he shows us that our faith is not simply an intellectual exercise or solely an internal belief. But that belief, that vertical belief, is to be worked out horizontally in active obedience in this world. In other words, real faith works. Real faith acts. So that's what we're going to see and learn this spring as we study this very beloved book of the New Testament. Answering the question, what are some of the distinguishing marks of authentic saving faith? Or what is real faith? 
Now, as he begins writing this letter, I mean, he just jumps right in. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, these first century Jewish Christians had been displaced. They had been sent away from Israel because of the stoning of Stephen, and they had been scattered among the surrounding Mediterranean area. In many ways, in some ways, these early believers were on the run, and some of them were scared. They were living in places that weren't normal to them. They were getting settled into new places. They didn't know if they would be next. They had already witnessed their beloved brother Stephen be stoned, and he was, and he was killed for this newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And so they were hurting. They were scared. They were in the midst of trials. They were in the midst of tribulation. And James knew this because he was a faithful, loving pastor who knew that his people knew what they were facing and must have known what sort of questions they must have been asking in the midst of their, in their circumstances. So that brings us 2,000 years later to you and me. You and I also face trials. We also face circumstances that are not necessarily comfortable. We may, we may not be on the run, literally, for our faith. We may not be under government-wide or, or widespread persecution because of our faith. We may not even be walking out the doors today wondering if our life is going to be taken from us today. But the human experience tells us over the last 2,000 years that being a human being on planet Earth is at times very arduous. And we go through very much highs in this life, but also experience some very deep and troubling valleys. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, which we do so often, is what do we make of trials? What do trials mean? Why do we have them? Why do we experience them? Where is God in the midst of them? Has anybody been there? So we're asking these questions much like the first century Christians would have been asking them. And so James just cuts to the chase and just dives right in with count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. So what do we make of trials? The first big thing I want you to see from the text this morning is this. God is sovereign over our trials. God is sovereign over our trials. Our human our human intuition says that life on earth should always be cupcakes and balloons, right? So it should just always be flowers and roses. And that is the definition of human experience. And nothing should shake us from that experience. I mean, that is just our knee-jerk human intuition defines life that way. And anything bad, disruptive, troubling or hurtful that comes our way, we just presume 
that God has absolutely nothing to do with that and that anything bad must come from Satan and his minions because God is so good, God would never allow anything disruptive, hurtful, disturbing to happen in my life. But what James is teaching us here is that God is not outside of our trials and tribulation. That God is not divorced from them, but God is over them. He's over them and above them. He is sovereign. He is in control of everything. Nothing is outside His purview. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Not if. Like It's not strange that trials and tribulation is written into the code of human experience from God's perspective for His people. And that's actually the pattern of the New Testament. Let me just give you a few places here. Jesus in two different places. Matthew 6, verse 34 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And in John chapter 16, verse 33, when he is about to go to the cross, he looks at his disciples and says, in the world, you will have tribulation. And then, of course, there's the promise, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, when Peter is writing to the persecuted church in Rome, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And so what we see from the text of Scripture is that trials, tribulation, suffering is written into the code of human experience. Jesus himself tells us this. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it. Now, when he says trials of various kinds, this could be anything. And I would suspect that in a room this size, represented in this room, is all types of trials. It could be unemployment, financial hardship. Some of us may have disobedient children, wayward kids. There are some who are going through really hard relational difficulties. Perhaps divorce has, you've been struck by divorce over the last year or someone you love has been. It could be a hard dating relationship. Perhaps it's disease. It's something health-wise. It could be parents who are suffering and are in their sunset years. It could just simply be struggles of the mind and depression. But regardless of what it is, we experience trials, don't we? We experience tribulation. In this life, we shed tears. In this life, we hurt and we feel the pain and the disturbing nature and, and feelings that it brings. So we're all on the same page in here. And so when James is writing, he's not writing about just one type of trial. He says, when you meet various kinds of trials, all kinds of trials on this earth. But in our trials, recognizing that God is sovereign over them and there is nothing that I experience on planet earth that is outside his purview or his allowing in my life, what is our response? What do we do? And so in our trials, I want to show you three things that he is going to teach us here. Number one, we must learn to think rightly. 
We must learn to think rightly. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. What in the world does that mean? And so perhaps in defining what it does mean, it might be helpful for us to define what it does not mean. Now, what James or Pastor Wacko is teaching us, not teaching us here, I mean, that would be our response, right? Like, are, are you serious, James? Like, when I go through the deepest tribulation and hurt in my life, I am supposed to count that as joy? Well, before we completely discount the faithful pastor here, let's talk about what he does not mean. Not for a moment is James teaching us that when we suffer and when we are at some of the most hurtful moments in our life, that God wants us to just slap a smile on and say, bring it on, right? That's not what he means. He, he doesn't mean that when we are at our very lowest of low and we are experiencing the hurt and the pain in our life, that God just somehow is up in heaven just smiling and saying, oh, look what they're experiencing today. Why can't they be like you and me, Jesus, like, who just experiences joy all the time? That's not the picture. And he's not telling us that we should just be fake and, and, and to go through those times just faking it for the glory of God, because that's just what Christians do. I'm very mindful of John chapter 11, when Jesus went to Bethany after his friend Lazarus had died. Do you remember that account? And Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, were waiting on Jesus when he had arrived. And when Jesus got there, he did not look at Mary and Martha and say, remember sisters, count it all joy when you go through trials and suffering. See, that's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did is he embraced them. And the scriptures say he wept. You see, Jesus weeps with us. Jesus has experienced everything that you and I have experienced on planet earth. And so he sympathizes with us. He empathizes with us. And he is for us in the midst of those trials. And so James does not mean that counting it joy just means slapping on a smile in the midst of our worst of circumstances. And that's what God says is pleasing as Christ followers. Look at the language carefully. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you experience trials. You see, what James is telling us is that there is a right way that I should be thinking about my trials. I should be considering them something that I'm not inclined to think about them as. It speaks more to how we are to think than how we are to feel. You see, there is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is when the Patriots win a football game. But then we experience the frustration and the sorrow when they lose. See, happiness is not just slapping on a smile when they lose. You see, joy, joy well, they lost today, but over the last 17 years, they have won a whole lot more than they have lost. 
As a matter of fact, they've won more than anyone else in all of the NFL. And so we can endure one loss. Do you see that perspective? And see, very similarly, although it could be a very weak transition, the difference between happiness and joy is that when I'm in the lowest of low, and I am hurting, and I'm experiencing trials and tribulations, it's very difficult to be happy in that moment. I'm not happy about it, but I'm joyful. And here's why I'm joyful. I'm joyful because there is a greater perspective. There is a bigger picture going on than just what's happening to me right now. Speaking more to how I'm to think about things than just to feel. What David Platt says in response to this is that God is encouraging these believers and us to embrace trials, not so much for what they are, but what for God sovereignly accomplishes through them. And just exactly what is that, preacher man? I'm glad you asked. So number one, we must learn to think rightly in the midst of our trials. Number two, we must learn to persevere strongly. He says, when you meet them, Count it all joy, for verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. You see, and there's where we start understanding at least a glimpse. Now, we may not understand all the hows and whys and whens of what we experience on planet Earth. There are many things that we're simply going to have to wait until we see Jesus face to face to have answers to. But what James is going to define for us is that when we count it all joy and when we experience these trials and we persevere in Jesus not around them, not under them, not over them, but when we persevere through them. What going through them does for us is it teaches us perseverance. And when we persevere and we endure through them without running away from God or abandoning our faith, every time we endure it and we experience that hardship, we experience that suffering, we shed those tears and we learn to trust God in the middle of it, what that does is it strengthens the muscles of our faith. And it makes our faith stronger. There are a lot of you in this room who are, uh, have exercise on your mind and you work out. And if you have ever worked out any part of your body, whether it's legs, arms, shoulders, whatever it is, when you are working out, if you are doing it right, you're going to experience pain in the process. And you're going to wake up on the next day, but especially day two, and you're going to really hurt. There are going to be muscles in your body that just hurt. And the reason they hurt is because they're being stretched. They are strengthening. You're getting stronger. And so in order for us to physically get stronger or bigger, we have to endure hardship on the muscles, don't we? We have to experience the pain. And that's why the classic adage, no pain, no gain, is actually very true. And spiritually speaking, that's what James is telling us, is that when we learn to think rightly and then we endure them and go through them, we have to learn to persevere strongly. Now, as you persevere strongly and you learn that endurance, he's going to tell us there's another aspect of going through trials. He says, and let steadfastness or endurance or perseverance, let that have its full effect. 
Okay, let's just stop right there. So we don't persevere just for perseverance's sake. We don't endure just to endure. He says that as we endure, as we learn to persevere, it's going to have its full effect. And what is that full effect? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the whole goal of the Christian faith. Do you hear this? The whole goal of the Christian faith is not to go to heaven when you die. Did you hear that? We need to remember this truth. The whole goal of our Christian faith is not to simply go to heaven when we die. The whole goal of the Christian faith is that I would grow up to look, to be, and to think just like Jesus. And so not only do we must learn to think rightly and to persevere strongly, we must also learn to grow maturely. To grow maturely. That's God's goal for you, is that you would grow up to look like His Son Jesus. That you would grow up to think like His Son Jesus. That you would grow up to behave and act just like His Son Jesus. And and it's a progressive sanctification, right? It's a progressive process that after following and enduring and persevering after one year or five years or 20 years, 30 or 50 years, that you look more and more like Jesus the further you go along and the more you endure. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 5. There are so many people who want to say that James contradicts Paul. Oh yeah, well, he just wrote this in verse Verses 3 and 4, and listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings. Does that sound familiar? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. The only primary difference here is that James is going to use the word perfect and complete, which points to maturation, and Paul is going to point to character. But in essence, they mean the exact same thing. Both Paul and and James, they teach us that God is sovereign over our trials. And in the midst of those trials, what God wants to do is He wants to change the way we think, He wants us to persevere and endure through Christ so that we would grow up and mature to look just like Jesus. So there's the perspective. That's the perspective shift that James wants for those first century followers and what God wants through his writing for you and for me today. But he doesn't stop there. Not only do we learn that God is sovereign over our trials, we also learn that God provides wisdom In the midst of our trials. It's one of the greatest things we need when we're hurting, isn't it? We need wisdom. You see, we we think that we need answers. We think that we need all the hows and the whys. We think we just need for it to be taken away. But James's antidote to our trials is neither of those things. James's antidote is godly wisdom because he goes on to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, and we can infer there that lacking wisdom in the midst of our trials, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. 
I want you to think about your times of suffering. I want you to think about your times of trials. Now, for some of us, it could be something we've experienced in our life or in, the recent, in our recent memory, or it could be something that you are in the middle of right now. When you're in the middle of that, one of the, one of the strongest companions to trials is confusion, isn't it? We're confused because we don't know why. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's next. We're just confused and we don't have all those answers. And we would be very wise in this to remember Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, that there are a lot of things that we just simply don't have answers for because God tells us in that passage that my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so God has a perspective that we just do not have. God has answers that we don't have, but we want to know. And so in the midst of our confusion, and James is giving us that, he's conceding that, He's implying that confusion is there because he's saying that we lack wisdom. And so if you lack that perspective, if you lack those answers, if you lack that wisdom, he says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So in our confusion, I want you to see two things here. First of all, know this, that God, he is fully competent to answer our need. He is fully competent to answer our need for wisdom. And to give us grace in the middle of our hurt. Do you notice what he starts with here? He reminds us who God is. He reminds us what God does. He reminds us what God gives. He says, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach to all. He reminds us that God has all wisdom, that God is all wise when we are not. He reminds us that God is very generous and lavish to His people and that He doesn't give begrudgingly or even sparingly in our time of need, but He lavishes His gifts upon us, that He gives with equity, that He gives to all who ask. He's not just giving to some over here or some over here, that He's very willing to give generously wisdom to all who ask Him. And so what James reminds us here is that the greatest thing that we need in the middle of our tribulations and trials is not to have all of our questions answered. What our greatest need is, is to be reminded who our God is and what He does. Because our greatest human intuition is to say that we know better than He does. And when we're hurting, is to come to the conclusion that God cannot be trusted Because we're going through something painful and hard. And James reminds us who God is. And that's the beginning of wisdom, is it not? It's what Proverbs 9 verse 10 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, you may be thinking right now, what exactly is wisdom? 
What is wisdom? And how is it different than knowledge? Because you see, there are a lot of people on planet Earth who are very, very smart. They are very intellectually strong, but they are very deficient in wisdom. You see, wisdom is not simply knowledge. It's different than knowledge. Wisdom is actually knowledge for life. It's an understanding in approaching circumstances here on earth and also understanding eternity. I like to define it something like this. The ability to rightly interpret life based on the word of God. That's wisdom. Can I rightly interpret what I'm seeing and experiencing based on the word of God? Now, ultimately, we ultimately see wisdom in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, wisdom is not just information. Wisdom is also a person. Because 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus became to us wisdom from God. And so when we hear Jesus and read Jesus and see these pictures of Jesus in our Bible, we get a clearer picture of what wisdom from God looks like. And so when trials come and we're hurt and we're confused, we don't understand. James tells us that God, because of who he is, is ready, able, and willing to give wisdom to us. He's perfectly competent to answer our every need. But there's a warning here. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I'm going to approach this very similarly as I did earlier. So what is James saying? Well, let's, let's look at what he's not saying in order to get to what he is saying. And we can read this and we could wrongly deduce that what James is telling us is that if you are truly a Christian and you have real faith, as the name of this series uh, describes, a person of real faith will never doubt. If you're a person who doubts, you don't have authentic faith. And if you doubt, God's not going to do anything for you. And, and what we do with this sometimes wrongly, and there are many denominations who actually teach something like this, that when we approach prayer or when we approach our hardship, that what the Bible is teaching us to do is to just muster up the courage. And if we just have enough faith inside of us, then God will answer us and he will hear us as if there is some sort of faith meter in the heavens that we're just trying to deposit quarters into in order to get God to take us seriously. You see, that erroneous theology can lead us to some really harmful places in our walks with God. It's not the picture that James is giving us here. Is he saying that Christians never have doubts? Absolutely not. Some of, those, some of the most faithful believers I know still struggle with doubts on any given day. The presence of doubt in your life is not a disqualifying mark of being right with Jesus. What he's ultimately telling us here is that just as God is wholeheartedly capable and willing to mold us, shape us, and provide for us in the midst of our pain, 
we should be wholeheartedly devoted to him and confident in his ability to mold us, shape us, and provide for us in the midst of our pain. He is wholeheartedly competent. We should be wholeheartedly confident that he's able. In other words, using his analogy, don't have one foot in the boat and one foot on the shore of the... So one foot in the boat of the Lord and one foot on the ground of the world and constantly vacillating between what God's answer is and what the world's answer is. Have you ever noticed that? That when we go through trials and tribulation, our human first response is to go to any plethora of earthly resources before we ever take it to God. Aren't we? I should talk to my dad. I should talk to my mom. I should talk to my therapist. I should go online. I should look for some answers. Oh, and you know what? Nothing else has worked, so perhaps I should reach out to God. That's our human response. James says that God should be our first response. We should go to Him first. And we should be confident in His ability to respond in His wholehearted, perfect competence. So you see, He is fully competent. We should be fully confident to ask for His help. We should be fully confident in asking for his help. One of the giants of the faith, at least in the 20th century, was a Dutch lady named Corey Ten Boom. Raise your hand if you've heard of Corey before. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker who, along with her family, helped a number of Jews to escape uh, the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. And consequently, She and members of her family were arrested and sent to a concentration camp. And she recounts that story of her family's efforts in her biography, A Hiding Place. And to illustrate the contrast between our perspective in our trials and God's perfect perspective in the midst of our trials, Corey weaved a tapestry of a crown to illustrate it. And the way she illustrates this is there is the backside of a tapestry. And this is what it looks like. The backside of a tapestry just has a bunch of thread. It doesn't look like much. There are some beautiful, vibrant colors in there, and there are also some dark colors. And what what Corey will tell you is that this is very similar to life here on earth. That there are some very vivid Moments of gold and silver that we just simply enjoy and love. And there are also some very dark threads that we experience. But the reality is both the beautiful, vibrant colors and the dark colors weave together to make this beautiful tapestry. But here in life on earth, in our limited perspective as human beings and our lack of wisdom, all we see is a big pile of yarn. But what she'll do is she'll flip the tapestry over and she'll give you the picture of the beautiful crown that she was weaving. And you start seeing how all of these threads that just look like a big glob of fabric and yarn paint together to make a beautiful picture of a gold jewel encrusted crown. This is a picture of the Christian life 
God knows the tapestry he is weaving. He knows the masterpiece that he is making that is your life. All you can see is the backside of it. All we can see is the underside of it. But he sees the grand picture. And one day when you and I stand side by side with him, he's going to explain it to us and we're going to get a greater picture of it. There's a beautiful poem to accompany the visual. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. What a beautiful picture. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you experience various trials. Because God is sovereign over those trials. And in the midst of them, ask Him and He'll give you wisdom. And as you walk through them, you're going to grow in wisdom because you've experienced something with your Father that you didn't experience before. But the last truth I want us to see before we close is this. He also, God promises reward to all who persevere through trials. Do you see the picture? So God is sovereign over our trials. God provides wisdom in the midst of our trials. And God promises reward to all who persevere through trials. You get to the end of this passage, and in verse, uh, the passage we're looking at today in verse 12, and he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The title of today's message is that faith perseveres. Real faith perseveres. Real faith perseveres in the midst of day-by-day, moment-by-moment trials, which go from being weeks and months to years and decades, which equal a lifetime. Real faith, James teaches us in this passage, is the faith that endures through and all the way to the end when we see Jesus face to face. This is the grand distinguishing mark of true believers versus false believers. And we get a hint of this in Matthew 13 when Jesus gives the parable of the sower. In one of his examples, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So he looks like a Christian. He looks like he's a follower of God. She sounds like a believer but yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As a pastor um, and campus minister for almost two decades, I've watched this firsthand. I've watched so many people come to faith in Jesus and walk with Jesus be a part of the fellowship of Jesus for a length of time. And then something bad happens. Something hard happens in life. 
And they just slowly dissipate and go away. And there are those who will say, see, aha, you can lose your salvation. James would teach us, Jesus would teach us, it's not that they lost it, it's that they never had it. Because authentic faith, real faith, perseveres. Because the grace of God that saves us is also the grace of God that will sustain us. The same grace of God that calls us to himself is the same grace of God that will empower us to endure in the midst of our trials. Now what he does here, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but what he does in verses 9 and 10 is he contrasts the lowly poor believer and the rich, the wealthy believer of high repute. And what he does here is he tells them to each boast in their position. Because you see, we could be tempted to think that if we are poor and living in poverty, it's because of that poverty that we suffer and that God doesn't care about us as much as he cares about those people who have money because they don't seem to be suffering as much as I do. And we can be very tempted to believe this. We can be very tempted that if we have less and we experience more struggle on earth because we don't have, that somehow the wealthy have it better, and if we can just get to their level, then life would be great. But see, the converse is also true. We can also think, because we have a lot, that somehow I've safeguarded myself from experiencing anything difficult on planet earth. But here's the deal this morning, because I'm looking at a room full of very diverse people from very diverse socioeconomic statuses. Trials and tribulations are the great leveling field, aren't they? Because no matter how little we have or how much we have, we each experience trials and tribulations of various kinds in our own way and based upon the sovereignty of God in our lives. And so what James is going to teach us is through the power of the gospel, we boast in our position. We boast in our position Because all of us, if we are in Christ, we're in the same position because of what Jesus has bought for us. Remember that Jesus is the one who perfectly endured everything. Hebrews 12.2 says that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. And so, brother, sister, regardless of what your earthly position is, we can now boast in our heavenly position regardless of our income level. And we follow the pattern and the example that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We boast in our position and also through the power of the gospel, we trust in His provision. We trust in his provision because the same grace of Jesus that has saved us is the same grace of Jesus that will sustain us. And the promise in verse 12 says that the one who remains steadfast under trial, when he has stood the test, will receive the crown of life. Here's the picture. Here's the reward that's coming for all of those who endure through the grace of Jesus to the very end. That there is is an end to our race that's coming. For some of us, I don't want to be morbid this morning, but for some of us, it could be months away. For some of us, it may be a couple of years away. 
For others, we may be decades away. But there's a moment that's coming when we cross the finish line. And we have run the race. And we have jumped the hurdles. We've wiped the sweat and the tears from our brow and our eyes. And we're going to reach the finish line to our ultimate home, our place of ultimate citizenship. And just as the Olympic athlete receives a laurel wreath and medal at their crossing at the end of the race, that's a picture, brother and sister, of the crown of life. The laurel wreath, the ultimate heavenly laurel wreath that's going to be placed on your brow and mind as Jesus has led us through and helped us persevere through all of our trials here on planet earth. Friend, here's what I want to say to us in closing this morning. I cannot, because the Bible does not give me all the answers of all the hows and whys of what you have experienced and what you are experiencing. In a world tainted by sin, there's going to be a lot of hurt and despair that we come, come before. But I pray that through the teaching of Scripture this morning, that James has helped us see that in the midst of our trials, God is sovereign over them and He doesn't waste a single bit of them. He uses every one of them to help us think rightly and to persevere strongly and to grow maturely so that we will look more like Jesus. And when we're in the midst of them, when we ask confidently for Him to give us wisdom, He will give us wisdom as we experience that with Him. And ultimately, as we persevere through every trial all the way to the end, we look forward, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, to see our ultimate Father who will give us the crown of life and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your ultimate home where you will never be scattered and never be displaced. And every tear will be wiped away from your eye to never be shed again. Come enter into your rest. That's the hope that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you today for the example that we have in Jesus, for the hope that we have in Jesus. Teach us today, Father, to not go looking for suffering, but to embrace suffering, not because it feels good, but because you are accomplishing great good in our life and our faith through it. Lord, we pray today that you would accomplish that truth in our life by the working of your Holy Spirit, because there's not a one of us in this room who thinks like that naturally. Father, we ultimately look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus, as you have saved us by your grace and accomplished everything to give us favor with God, we look to your example, who you had joy in your suffering for the joy that was set before you. And so, Jesus, would you come and give us grace and joy to endure what we endure here on planet Earth so that we may reach the end of our race well. Jesus, sustain us. Sustain us through persevering grace all the way to the end, we pray in your name. Amen.